If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 27. Again, that's Matthew 19, verse 27. Our passage for today is Matthew 19, 27 through Matthew 20, verse 16. Uh, I came across a problem as I was working on this week's passage. It seems every week I come across one problem or another as I prepare these messages for you. And these problems come in all different shapes and sizes. A lot of times that problem is exegetical, meaning that fairly often there's a particularly challenge, interpretive issue in the passage that I have to sort out. Uh, Other times the problem deals more with the idea of presentation. Uh, I understand the passage, I've studied it, I've worked out the interpretive issues, I know what it means in my head. But when I try to figure out how to communicate that to you, how to set it all down in a coherent message that's logical, that makes sense, it's easy to listen to, uh, I come across one problem or another that makes that difficult. That's the type of problem, actually, I probably struggle with the most, just trying to figure out how to structure these messages in a way that you can really get the meaning of the passage. Well, the problem that I ran into this week came up when I started to think about the application of today's passage. I do that every week as well. I start by studying the passage, I get the meaning of the text, and then I ask myself now, how is this passage relevant to my congregation? That's what everybody wants, and that's what good preaching should do. It shouldn't just explain the text, it should also call on the congregation to respond to it. Now that can happen a lot of different ways. It doesn't always have to be in the form of a to-do list. In fact, I think the best application, more often than not, is not the type that can come in the form of a to-do list, but the point is preaching is supposed to change you. It should affect your relationship with God in a very direct way. So every week after I arrive at the meaning of the passage, I ask myself, now how is this passage applied? What's the application of these verses? And my first thought this week was there's not one. This is a very impractical message. The question that we want to know every week It's how can I take this passage and live it out? How can I apply this lesson to my life this week? And as I looked at this passage from this perspective, it can seem very impractical. If I could put it bluntly, the issues that Jesus addresses in this passage just don't matter to a lot of people. The topic here is eternal rewards. And I think if we're being honest, that can seem like a very impractical topic to a lot of us. We come across a passage like this and we think eternal rewards. Come on, I need something that can help me tomorrow. Stop with this heaven talk. Give me something tangible, something real. And as I wrestled with this thought, as I tried to figure out how to make this passage interesting and convicting, it occurred to me that we are a nation filled with rich young rulers. You'll recall that two weeks ago I explained that the verses in front of us today are really just part of one big passage that starts back in verse 13 and then continues all the way up to chapter 20, verse 16. And the theme of this section is summarized in verses 30 uh, of chapter 19 and verse 16 of chapter 20, where Jesus explains that many who are first will be last and the last first. As Jesus is steadily moving to the cross, He's preparing His disciples for life in a post-resurrection world for the period of time between His first coming and His second, when they will go out into the world as emissaries of his gospel. And one of the lessons that he wants them to learn as he prepares them for this is many who are first will be last and the last first. He's imparting a whole new set of principles for his disciples to live on in this mission. He's giving them a new paradigm to think through. And this is one of those principles. In the kingdom of heaven, there is going to be this kind of polar shift where the great are made low And the low are lifted up. This point is highlighted in the contrast between the children who are brought to Jesus in verses 13 to 15 and Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler in verses 16 to 22. You have these people who are bringing their children to be blessed by Jesus in verses 13 to 15, and the disciples are trying to stop them. Children were essentially second-class citizens in ancient Israel. They were the bottom rung of society. And the disciples think Jesus is too important to be messing around with people like that, so they rebuke the people for bringing the kids to Jesus. And Jesus tells the disciples, no, don't do that. Let them come forward. And he explains, saying, 
to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He tells the disciples, look, don't you get it? The kingdom of heaven is going to be filled with the second class citizens, the lowly, the insignificant, the unimportant. So don't stop them from coming to me. Let them come. Give them your attention. The encounter with the rich young ruler then becomes an object lesson that illustrates and explains Jesus' point. In verse 16, this man comes up to Jesus seeking to enter into the kingdom, asking, what good must I do to have eternal life? And this man, he has essentially everything. He's rich. He's young. According to Luke's gospel, he's apparently some kind of ruler. And best of all, he's incredibly moral. This is a man who fears God, who fears for his soul. This is a man who takes God's word very seriously. In short, he would have been, in the disciples' eyes, the perfect candidate for discipleship. He's the type of guy who people will listen to. He's the type of guy who will have influence. And in this respect, he's the exact opposite of the children. This man is great. He's the type of guy who the disciples would think will shape the world for Christ. And so while the disciples tried to keep the children away, this is the type of guy that they would have bumped to the front of the line. But there's a problem. When it comes time for this man to make his decision... He can't follow. When Jesus extends an offer of discipleship to him, tells him to leave behind his life as the rich young ruler and instead serve Christ, this man cannot do it. And why not? Verse 22, because he had great possessions. All those things that the the disciples thought made this man the perfect candidate for discipleship, Jesus shows them they were actually a stumbling block. In fact, Jesus even goes so far as to say that it is practically impossible for the rich to enter into heaven. So difficult is the choice for them to trade in their comfort for Christ's sufferings. This is why you don't turn away the second class citizens. The low will readily surrender everything for Christ in part because they have little hope for riches or joy in this life. Guys like Matthew, it's relatively easy for them to walk away from their tax collecting booths to follow Christ. They have nothing to lose. Now, it's still a work of God. Verse 26, even the low must have their eyes opened to desire the things of heaven. But that being said, humanly speaking, that's a relatively easy choice for them to make once that desire is there, to walk away. They really have nothing to lose. The great, however, they are already content. They have much in this life. So this is a hard choice for them. For them, discipleship entails much loss, whereas for the low, there's really only gain. And this means that the disciples shouldn't neglect the rich, certainly. But at the same time, they most definitely should not neglect the poor either. The poor have a lot more going on for them spiritually than they're often given credit for. They're desperate. They're ready to fix their eyes on heaven because that's really the only thing they have to hope in quite often. Our problem is that we are a nation filled with rich young rulers. America is the most economically powerful nation on earth. Per capita, we are among the richest, nation, among the richest nations in the world. I think if you want to understand the number one reason why the gospel is losing influence in this nation, where, when there's such a, a rich gospel heritage here, and why this is happening in every other western industrialized nation, I think you could propose that the answer is found right here with the rich young ruler. We are far, far too comfortable. Our wealth, so far from being a blessing, has actually become a stumbling block. We are wealthy, well-fed, entertained. We are free. We have the opportunity to do whatever we want in our life. And what this means is that, like the rich young ruler, we have a lot to hope in right here on earth. That makes Jesus' call to discipleship a very hard pill to swallow. And I think this not only manifests itself in declining church attendance, it manifests itself through a very subtle but very significant shift in the church's focus, away from eternal matters and onto immediate application. This is how the church has tried to cope with the loss of interest in the gospel in our nation. People are so wrapped up in their lives, in the here and now, that they're no longer concerned about heaven and hell. 
And the way the church has tried to adjust to this is by saying, look, Jesus will make this life better. You just have to follow His commands and He'll bless you richly. And so churches preach on the peace that Jesus gives. Basically, they turn Him into a kind of psychologist. The gospel is about mental health. Or they'll make Him a family counselor by talking about how Jesus came to make healthier families. Or they'll preach on finances even and the comfort that Jesus brings if you only turn to Christ in your finances. Try Jesus, they scream, and He'll make your life better. And Jesus never actually promised this. Not even in the passage that's in front of us. In just a moment, I'm going to read this passage, and we'll read it together, and we're going to see Peter turn to Jesus, and after watching the rich young ruler leave, ask him, what about us? What's in it for us? And do you know what Jesus won't talk about? Earthly rewards. The rewards he's going to talk about are strictly future. Now you could counter that point by uh, pointing out in the parallel account in Mark, Jesus does say that a disciple will receive, quote, now in this time, a hundred full houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. But even in that account, Jesus immediately follows that statement by saying that they will receive these things along with persecutions. So even the immediate blessing, it's mixed with suffering and difficulty and trials. Jesus didn't promise His disciples a life of ease and comfort. He promised them a cross. He said that they were going to suffer for His sake. He said that anyone who wasn't willing to take on that way of life was not worthy to be His disciple, actually. Men like the rich young ruler, men like the scribe who promised to follow Jesus everywhere, and the man who wanted to bury his father back in Matthew 8, men who hesitated to suffer with Jesus, He turned them away. The New Testament is incredibly clear. The promise offered in the Gospel is not a promise for this life primarily, but for the next. Yes, there are blessings to be found even in this life, in Christ. But even then, they're not the type that the rich young ruler was was hoping for. In this sense, Jesus doesn't make life easier. He actually makes it harder. That's why He tells prospective disciples repeatedly, Repeatedly, count the cost. There's a cost to following Jesus. It's a hard road to travel. So he tells them, count the cost before you do it. Now, you're not going to build a crowd with that kind of a message. If you've not heard this very often in the church, if you've only heard about how much better Jesus makes life when the New Testament repeatedly, repeatedly talks of the difficulty that we'll experience as Christ's disciples, this is why. Crowds come out when the bread and fish are multiplied. They leave when the implications of those signs are explained. We are a nation full of rich young rulers, and we bring that attitude into the church. Many come to church and go, Okay, Jesus, show me how you're going to make my life better. And if we walk out of church on Sunday and we didn't discover some immediate application to do that, we call it a failure. This this mindset has completely changed the way we think about church and the gospel, actually. The gospel is about eternity. It's about eternal destinies, heaven and hell. But that's not enough for most. And so slowly but steadily, it's become about happier lives here and now. It's about peace of mind or, or better morals or social justice and cultural transformation. And don't get me wrong, those are all things that have to do with the gospel, but they are not the gospel. The gospel is about Christ reconciling sinners to God through His death on the cross. It's about eternal life, which is received through faith in Christ's death for our sins. That's not a message that rich young rulers are interested in. They want comfort. And so that message is often neglected today. And that's a travesty because it leads to a church that is so short-sighted in its thinking that it's unwilling to make the sacrifices necessary to advance the gospel. Why is the church at large so apathetic about evangelism? So confused even about what its mission is? Why does it seem as if the church today is asleep? I think you discover the answer here. We are not fixed on eternity. We are wrapped up in the comforts of this life. And you will not advance the kingdom of God that way. You will not advance it by being comfortable. 
The kingdom advances through the blood, sweat, and tears of Christ's disciples as they pick up their cross and suffer with Him. You will not be willing to do that so long as your hope is fixed here on earth. It will only happen as your eyes are fixed on heaven. I mean, do you know why Jesus is going to spend so much time preparing the disciples for their post-resurrection mission by talking about His return? I guess what he focuses on this in this section, his return. And he's preparing them for their mission by talking about his return. Do you know why that is? It's because this concept is critical to their willingness to engage in this mission. It is only as we consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt that we will gladly abandon our selfish ambitions in order to advance his kingdom. Friends, we must be a people that is marked not by a hope in this life, but by a hope in heaven. We must understand and truly believe that this present world is already passing away, that it's all already turning to dust, and live for the hope that is before us if we're going to bear any fruit for the gospel. Now we're already about a third of the way through this message, and if you notice, I still haven't really touched on the meaning of today's passage. It probably sounds like I'm rambling. I'm not. At least, I don't think so. I don't intend to be rambling. I just think that the, short, that the short-sighted thinking of the rich young ruler has so infiltrated the church at large that it's become so normalized that all of us are probably susceptible to fall into it without even realizing it. And if this passage is going to leave any sort of impression on you, if you're going to see what Jesus is saying here as in any way practical and important... You have to identify and check that attitude at the door. You can't come at this passage thinking like the rich young ruler. Understand, the rich young ruler is no longer a part of the conversation at this point. When he came upon the fork in the road where he had to choose between the riches of the world or the riches of Christ, he chose the former and left. The disciples, however, they chose the latter. They're still here. That's the issue that Peter brings up at the beginning of this passage. When they had to make that choice, they forsook the world to follow Christ. So the only people who are still in this conversation at this point are those with an eternal mindset. They have forsaken this life for the next. I think it's really important to point this out before we get started, because if you're not thinking this way, then there's nothing I can really do for you here. What I'm about to say is going to come off flat, You're going to think that this message is boring and impractical because it has to do with things that don't really matter to you. But if you are thinking this way, if eternity matters, then the issues that Jesus unpacks are going to be incredibly practical and interesting because it has to do with those things that you long for most. So I realize that I'm taking a lot of time to set up this passage, but if you could, just kind of consider this pre-application, I guess. Uh, Now's your chance to examine yourself, examine the things that you really long for, and if you find yourself thinking like the rich young ruler, now's the time to identify that and acknowledge the error so you can focus on what Jesus says in the passage and really take it in, apply it to your life. So all that being said, let's now go ahead and read the passage together. Matthew 19, 27 uh, to 20, uh, verse 16. The rich young ruler has just left, and Jesus has just told his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter into heaven. Matthew continues, starting in verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children for lands or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. But the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he, went, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. 
Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And and when those hired uh, about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those who hired came first, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first. And the first last. So the rich young ruler leaves. Jesus offers to make him a disciple, but he demands that he leave everything behind to follow him. And this man can't do that. He owns too much. He's too rich. The cost is too great. As much as he wants eternal life, he wants his things more. So he turns Jesus down. Now, Peter turns to Jesus. And in verse 27, he says, what about us? The rich young ruler couldn't give up his riches to follow Christ. Peter sees him leave and he says to Jesus, see, we've left everything to follow you. What then will we have? He says, look, we've done what he wouldn't do. So what's in it for us? Can you tell us what's the payoff, Jesus, for leaving everything behind to follow you? When Peter asks this question, what will we have? He's actually asking two questions in one. There are two concerns that he's driving at when he asks this. And so Jesus answers his question in two parts, addressing each issue in turn. The first part comes in verses 28 to 29. The second comes in the form of of a parable, and it starts in verse 30, runs through chapter 20, verse 16. And from these two answers, we learn two lessons about how God will distribute the disciples' reward. The first thing that Peter wants to know is, is it worth it? He's looking at the trade-off. He's looking at all that a disciple must give up in his life to follow Christ. And he's wondering if the reward is going to be enough to cover the expense. This is a question that I think any thinking disciple is going to ask themselves from time to time. At least if they're living hard for the advancement of the gospel. I'll tell you, if I'm being honest, I ask myself this question pretty often. If you're being faithful, I don't know how you can't. If you're trying to live for Christ, if you're trying to run hard for the sake of the gospel, then it will often cause you to abandon any hope to find joy in many things in life here. And that might include sin. Following Christ will mean that you abandon sin. And as you abandon sin, there will be many pleasures in this life that other people will experience that you won't. And there might be moments in your life when your flesh will cry out after those sins and you'll go, is this really worth it to abandon that sin for Christ? But this doesn't only include sin. If you follow Christ, if you, if you live radically for the gospel, you're sometimes going to be led to sacrifice things that are perfectly good and acceptable to enjoy for the sake of the gospel. My wife and I were discussing this just this past week as we were away with family in Michigan. I mean, I don't know if you realize this, but the only reason why my wife and I are here in Carthage, Missouri is for this church plant. That's not a slight on Carthage or anything, but we're not from here. The only reason why we moved here was to invest in this church. Ministry brought us here. And we don't plan on leaving anytime soon. But we both know that if I was not in ministry, we wouldn't be here. Again, that's not a slight on Carthage. It's just we're not, we're not from here. We'd want to be near family. Whether that be up in Michigan with her family or over in Nashville with my family, that's probably where we'd be if I wasn't in ministry. So ministry has brought us away from family. And as far as we know, that's the only thing that's keeping us away from family. 
And guys, if I'm just being honest, when we go and spend a week with family, we're asking ourselves, is it worth it? I mean, we have one life to live, and this whole Jesus thing has kept us away from family for a pretty long time. There are nieces and nephews that are in high school, and we've seen them like a few days a year, if that, over the past several years, going back before seminary. That's enough for us to go, is it all worth it? And that's using an example from someone in full-time ministry, but it's not unique to that. I mean, just think about the amount of time that you've spent in church. Or the amount of time that you've spent studying Scripture over the years. In order to be a faithful Christian. If you give faithfully, think about the amount of money that you've given over the years. Just handed it away for the advancement of the gospel. How could you have spent that time or that money if you didn't follow Christ? Even if you've never had to move away from family, there are sacrifices that you should be making for the advancement of Christ's kingdom if you're one of His disciples. Everyone's called to do that, to make sacrifices, difficult sacrifices, and these sacrifices should lead you to ask, is it worth it? In fact, the more mature you become in Christ... And the more you live for Christ as a result of this maturity, the more He governs every aspect of this life, the more common I think this question becomes. Is it worth it to just hand it all over to Jesus? That's the question Peter's asking. And Jesus answers this question in verses 27 and 28. There we see the first lesson about God's distribution of the disciples' reward, which is this. Lesson number one, the reward will be distributed abundantly. The reward will be distributed abundantly. It's an abundant reward. Jesus says to Peter, verses 27 to 28, or sorry, uh, 27, or 28 to 29, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Here Jesus speaks of the reward that the disciples will receive and he speaks of it in three parts. Uh, First, to the disciples specifically, he says that they will sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, The word for judge here in the Greek usually refers to what we think of When we think of the word, it usually refers to the idea of passing sentence, uh, sitting in judgment over, either condemning or declaring not guilty. However, the word is also used in the Greek Old Testament to speak of the judges of Israel, who were essentially political leaders for the nation. And if we're considering this statement in context, where Jesus is talking about rewards, when we read it in light of the request that James and John are about to make in the very next passage in verses 20 to 28, then it's probably better to read this word judge in the latter sense. Jesus is telling these 12, minus Judas, presumably, that in the new world, literally the regeneration, the kingdom of heaven, they will have special authority over the 12 tribes of Israel. In the Old Testament, Israel was not supposed to be ruled by a mere man, but God, and He gave Israel judges to lead Israel as His temporary representatives. What we see here is God the Son in human form, the Son of Man, reigning over Israel as its king, with the twelve disciples serving as his special human representatives, such as Israel had multiple judges leading various parts of the nation at any one time before the establishment of David's monarchy. It is truly government as God intended for Israel, and the apostles will play a special role in that administration. That's one reward that Jesus speaks of, and we'll touch on that a bit more in just a moment. Second, Jesus speaks of the reward that every disciple will receive. And there are two parts to this reward. First, Jesus says that everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters or or father or mother or children or lands will be recompensed a hundredfold in the regeneration. Now, we can talk about the specifics of how that will work, but regardless, the basic point is that Peter shouldn't be feeling sorry for himself. He and every single disciple who follows Christ is going to receive many times back from God whatever they lost here on earth for the sake of Christ. This is an important point. You can't outgive God. Yes, God 
does demand sacrifice from each of his disciples. Not because that sacrifice really gives anything to God in the end, but because it is the consequence of faith in a fallen world. It comes at a cost. But at the same time, the cost that it entails pales in comparison with the reward. That's Jesus' point there. That's the second part that Jesus addresses to every disciple, or the first part that he addresses to every disciple, the second thing that he speaks of here. Last but not least, Jesus also says that everyone who follows him will receive eternal life. And that's the biggie. Eternal life. It doesn't matter what relationships, what possessions you might enjoy, none of it is any good if you die. This is the problem with earthly wealth. Not only does it slowly crumble and decay under the effects of the curse, not only is it all ultimately perishable, but death separates every single one of us from it. It doesn't matter how rich you are, you will die. And when you die, you will take none of your wealth with you. Again, every single relationship with have, you have, your spouse, your family, your friends, death potentially severs all of those relationships. So really, this is the reward that makes all the others worthwhile. Jesus says that his disciples will receive this in the regeneration as well. They will have eternal life. So in answer to Peter's question, is it worth it? Yeah, it's worth it. I mean, forget about the hundredfold recompense. Just take this last reward, eternal life. What would you pay to have eternal life? Or more specifically, how much would you give to escape the eternal wrath of God in hell? There's no price on that, right? To put it in Jesus' words, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The answer is nothing, correct? I mean, suppose someone came and offered you some obscene amount of money, $10 billion or something like that, and they offered it on the condition that after you die, you spend eternity in hell. Would you do it? Absolutely not, right? Eternal life is priceless. There's nothing that you wouldn't gladly pay to live forever, right? Well, Jesus says right here, everyone who abandons this life for His sake, they will find it. They will have eternal life. That's a good deal. So yeah, it's worth it. It's more than worth it. It's the deal of the century. In the words of the missionary Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So that's one issue that Peter is wrestling with when he asks this question. Is it worth it? And Jesus answers that question simply and powerfully in verses 28 and 29. The second issue is perhaps less common, but I think it's a little more interesting. Apparently part of what Peter wants to know is not just is it worth it, but what will we get in particular Peter says, we have left everything and followed you. What will we have? And the emphasis is on those words in the Greek. We. Peter's asking about the twelve in particular. That's why Jesus answers with a reward directed specifically at the twelve first. Peter recognizes that they haven't just left everything for Jesus, but they got in on the ground floor. To put it in colloquial terms, the disciples were the original Christian hipsters. They were rocking Jesus before it was cool, before it was in style. So what kind of points do they score for that? What do they get for getting the answer right before everybody else? That's the other issue that Peter's concerned about. Jesus answers this question with the parable that begins in verse 30. And what he tells Peter is essentially, uh, what points do you score for that? None. You get no extra points. This is the second lesson that we learn about God's distribution of the disciples' reward. Lesson number two, the reward will be distributed equally. So it is distributed abundantly, but it's also distributed equally. Everyone will get the same reward. Jesus says, starting in uh, chapter 19, verse 30, continuing to verse 16 of chapter 20, He says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And after going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing there. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? 
They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal with us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I, cho- uh, what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first. And the first last. If you notice this answer begins with this word, but. So Jesus answers Peter's question first by saying, don't worry about it. You're going to have a rich reward. But, he says in verse 30, but, and he draws this contrast. You will get a rich reward, but, and then he goes on to explain that they will not get preferential treatment. That's the basic meaning of this parable. It's bookended by these statements where Jesus speaks of the first being last and last first. We've seen this point illustrated already with the contrast between the children and the rich young ruler. There's a kind of reversal taking place where those who are the least in this world will be among the first to enter into the kingdom of heaven. This principle continues to play itself out in the distribution of of, uh, rewards as well. In this parable, a landowner goes out and he gathers workers for his field at all different times of day. If you notice this last group of workers that's hired, there's nothing of of laziness necessarily or any of that sort in them. They weren't idle because they didn't want work. They informed the landowner that the reason why they're still standing there is because no one has come out to hire them. So these men aren't lazy. If anything, they're extremely dedicated to be waiting there so long for work, considering that it would be highly improbable that anyone would come and hire them during the last hour or so of the day, which is what we have here. The 11th hour would have been about 5 p.m. So if we are to read anything into the fact that these men have been standing there all day, it would be that these men are highly undesirable workers. No one wants to hire them. The landowner then, he doesn't hire them because he needs them. He hires them as an act of compassion. He probably hired enough workers to work his field at the beginning of the day, but he comes back and finds these men standing there idle, unable to find any work, and he has compassion on them. And he hires them. That explains the payment that we're about to see in a moment. These men are in need of daily wages to buy food, and so he hires them as an act of mercy. Payment time comes around, and you would expect that the ones who did the greatest amount of work we get the greatest amount of wages. But when the landowner starts doling out payment, he gives the same amount to the last workers that he gives to those who work through the heat of the day. The first workers, of course, take issue with this. I think anyone would. They say, hey, we worked the whole day. Why are you giving them the same amount as us? That seems unfair, doesn't it? Those who produce the most should get the greatest share of the wages. The landowner, though, says, look, I paid you what I contracted you for, didn't I? So I've done fair by you, have I not? So why are you complaining against me for my generosity? My money is mine to do with as I wish, is it not? I've not treated you unfairly. So you have nothing to complain about if I choose to be gracious to these over here. Theologically, this point is fairly straightforward. Yes, the disciples will get an abundant reward for following Jesus. But they're not going to get an extra reward, extra reward for being the first to do it. The promise is the same for everyone. You surrender your life for Christ, and you will get a hundredfold recompense in eternal life. It doesn't matter when a person makes that commitment. It doesn't matter how much fruit they've borne in their life. As long as they go to work the field, it's the same deal for everyone. Now, I think I should probably balance this out by saying that the Scripture does indicate that after death, every believer will stand before the throne of Christ and be recompensed differently according to what they've done here on earth. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 5, 9-10, Paul says, We make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 
So Paul seems to indicate in heaven there will be some distinction made even among believers according to the deeds that they've done here on earth. In fact, this point will be established by Jesus just a few chapters from now with the parable of the talents. But I think it's worth noting, number one, this reward is given not on the basis of what a person produced in the flesh, but on the basis of their faithfulness. That concept will be brought out in the parable of the talents. And that's important because it backs up what's being said here with the day laborers. The reward that God gives is not earned. It's not a wage given to recompense the worker for the amount that they produced. It is grace. Again, there is a distinction made on the basis of a person's faithfulness, but it is not made on the basis of what they produced. That means it's not earned, it's grace. Again, this is important. When we really get down to it, the reality is that theologically speaking, the men who came at the beginning of the day in this parable are actually no more deserving of the reward that Jesus speaks of here than those who came at the end. None of them are worthy to receive a hundredfold recompense and eternal life. All are actually deserving of death. Now, God does say, if you follow me, then this is what you'll get. He enters into a contract with every disciple, and it's a contract established on the basis of grace. So those first men take God up on, the, on their offer, on that offer. They are faithful to those terms. And so they are, quote, paid, quote, paid, not, again, not earned, but they're paid on the basis of that re- response. These men who come at the end of the day, are they any less faithful? God offers the first men a contract at the beginning of the day, and He pays them on the basis of that contract. That's fair. These last men, the only reason they didn't work as long as the first is because that offer wasn't extended to them at the same time. They're really just as faithful as the first. Really, God makes the same offer to these men. I'll pay you a day's wages if you work for me. Both groups of men do it, and both do it with the same degree of faithfulness. One just receives that offer later than the others. So if God is distributing a reward on the basis of grace, while making a distinction according to one's faithfulness, why should the latter group receive less payment than the former? They shouldn't. No, they didn't produce as much. They didn't labor as much. But God doesn't award on the basis of labor or product. He awards on the basis of grace in accordance with the disciples' faithfulness. Uh, This should be an encouragement, by the way. I hope you realize that. I mean, there's never a point where any one of us can say, you know, what's the point of serving God now? It's too late for me anyways, right? No, that's not how God works. You can repent now. Now. You can repent. And receive just as much from God as the one who has been faithful their entire life. Because God doesn't award according to one's labor but according to their faithfulness on the basis of His grace. All you have to do to receive that reward is repent. So the time to repent is always now. As long as you have breath in you, it's never too late. Number two, I think it's also worth noting that the distinction that is made in heaven is made not so much in terms of reward per se, but it would seem authority. That's what we see here in the parable of the talents, or what we will see, rather, in the parable of the talents. The one who is faithful with little will be set over much. To everyone who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Matthew 25, 29. Of course, this is even what we see back in verse 28. Jesus does actually make a distinction, right, between the disciples and everyone else. But that distinction is made in terms of authority that they will receive in heaven. They will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This could explain, by the way, why God would make a distinction on the basis of one's faithfulness. It has less to do with what a person earned and more to do with stewardship. They are faithful with little, and so they are deserving of much. It has to do with a person's abilities or qualifications, so to speak, to exercise authority. So there is a distinction to be made. Believers will be recompensed according to their faithfulness, but it will be made in terms of authority. And if we're reading this in light of what Jesus is about to say to James and John in our next passage, then we can understand that it's hard to call this authority a reward. 
We'll see this next week. James and John will come to Jesus asking for greater positions of power and authority. And one of the things that Jesus will say to them is that they don't understand authority. They think authority is about being served. Jesus says in the kingdom of heaven it's the other way around. That's how God uses his authority to serve. And that's how his disciples will use their authority as well. So again, there's a sense in which this authority is a reward. Jesus himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive, according to Acts 20.35. We don't understand this a lot of times because of our sin. But in heaven, once our sin is removed, we will. We will think like God and we will take delight in serving other people. So there is, in some sense, more reward given to those who are faithful than to those who are not. It's just not the kind of reward that Peter's talking about. He doesn't ask, what will we we be able to give in heaven? He asks, what will we have? He wants to know, what will we get? And the answer to that is the same as everyone else. You will get much, but not more. Now what the disciples will give in heaven, presumably the answer to that question will be more than others. That's the purpose of the greater authority they receive. It's going to be given to them, not so that they can be served, but so that they can serve. So I want you to understand, it's not wrong to desire heavenly reward. That's one thing that we should take away from this passage. It's okay to want heavenly reward, to look forward to it, to anticipate that. Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter for asking, what's in it for me? If anything, he encourages him in that thought. After all, it's as, it's as we long for heavenly rewards that we will willingly abandon the riches of this world for the sake of Christ. I mean, really, I would say that the problem for most of us isn't that we think too much of heavenly rewards, it's that we actually regard them too little. We're ineffective in our service to Christ in large part because we're short-sighted. We're living for this life, not the next. So it's not wrong to think about Heavenly reward. Jesus talked about rewards often. Paul very openly spoke of striving for heavenly reward. It was a large part of what made him preach the gospel with, with such reckless abandon. Peter likewise encouraged Christians who were suffering for the gospel with the prospect of their heavenly reward. It's not wrong to think about heavenly rewards. But how do you think about those rewards? That's the thing that Jesus corrects here with Peter. And it's what he'll correct next week with James and John as well. It's not wrong to think about rewards. But what are those rewards? And how do you think they're awarded? That's what Jesus is addressing here. He's preparing the disciples for the suffering that will occur between his resurrection and return by fixing their focus on the rewards that they will receive at his return. But he does so while correcting the way they think about those rewards. He adjusts the value system that they attach to those rewards. So let me ask you, how did it make you feel a moment ago when I said that someone can repent now and receive just as much from God as the one who has been faithful their entire life? How does it make you feel when I say that the person who lives a life of licentiousness only to repent at the very end of their life will receive just as much from God as the one who labors hard and suffers rejection for Christ their entire life. Do you kick back at that? Do you start to say, wait a minute, that can't be, that's not fair. And do you have a problem with that thought? Because, and let's be honest now, do you have a problem with that thought? Because when you hear this, you're looking at your own life how faithful you are to Christ, how much you've given to Him, and in light of that, you don't think it's fair that someone could join the team and jump on the field late in the game after all the hard work is done, after you've left your blood, sweat, and tears out there on that field and received the same trophy as you. If so, Jesus is talking to you. Listen, the first group of laborers, this is the problem that they had. They turn to the landowner and say, these worked, these last worked only one hour. And you've made them equal to us who have borne the heat of the day and the scorching heat. And what does the landowner say? He says, I paid you what I agreed to, didn't I? 
So why do you begrudge me my generosity? That's the landowner talking to you. If you have a problem with those who have produced less, getting the same reward, understand you're Peter in this story. And Jesus is addressing this parable to you. If you're sitting here thinking this thought this morning, let me ask you, what do you think you deserve from God for your labor? Do you think your effort to advance Christ's kingdom has in any way earned you something special from God? If so, you need to repent because that's not how God's economy works. This isn't how the kingdom of heaven works. God gives according to His grace. He's not beholden to anyone. He will be merciful to whom He is merciful and He will have compassion on whom He will have compassion. I don't care how much you've labored for Him. I don't care how much you've walked away from to serve Christ. He doesn't owe you anything. Actually, you owe Him. All that you give to Him, guess what? It's all rightfully His anyways. When you give everything to Christ, all you're doing is giving Him His due. You're not doing anything special. You're just doing what ought to be done. So God doesn't owe you anything. But that being said, He does give to you anyways. And He gives abundantly. To everyone who leaves houses or mothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands, for Jesus' sake, they will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I don't care what you've done for Christ, that's more than any of you deserve. And for that we can be grateful. There's no basis for jealousy in the body of Christ. There's no place for it. And there's no need for it either. Because we're all going to receive way more from God than any of us deserve. That's the message that Jesus is trying to get across here to Peter. And that's what we need to take away from this passage as well. We should desire eternal reward. But we should receive what we get with gratitude. Understanding that it is not earned, but given. And it's given as an expression of God's abundant and unmerited grace. How about we close this morning by thanking God for that gift together in prayer. Let's thank God for His rich and undeserved reward which we receive in Christ. Let's pray.